Well, this weekend, we're returning to our study of the book of Daniel, and we're returning to chapter 3 for the fifth, and I promise, final time. And I'm returning one more time to chapter 3 because the experience of Daniel's friends that is recorded there has one more valuable insight to offer us before we move on. And it's a recognition that is far too important to overlook. I'm going to read from the portion of chapter 3 that describes the condition of Daniel's friends after they exited the furnace and the declaration that Nebuchadnezzar made in light of their freedom. After his arrogance had been effectively ghetto slapped by the power of God. So listen to verses 27 through 30. Once the satraps, prefects, governors, and ministers of the king had gathered around, they saw that those men were physically unharmed by the fire. The hair of their heads was not singed, nor were their trousers damaged. Not even the smell of fire was to be found on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent forth his angel and has rescued his servants who trusted in him, ignoring the edict of the king and giving up their bodies rather than serve or pay homage to any god other than their god. I hereby decree that any people, nation, or language group that blasphemes the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be dismembered and his home reduced to rubble. For there exists no other God who can deliver in this way. Then Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Today, as we consider once more this dramatic story, my goal will be to encourage you to see those moments in life when you feel like God's allowing you to go through a furnace, to see those moments differently and to approach them with expectancy. I've entitled this teaching, Nothing But the Ropes. Will you say that with me? Nothing But the Ropes. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, every week I ask for your assistance at this point because every week I need it. The proclamation of your truth is nothing that no man and no woman can do on their own. It has to originate in the equipping and the empowering of your Holy Spirit. And the understanding and application of your truth requires the equipping, and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. So, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us in this moment, enabling me to teach your truth and echo our God's heart faithfully, enabling all of us to understand what this truth means for our lives, enabling us to apply it faithfully, Father, as always, we pray this so that we will increasingly look like Jesus to a world that desperately needs to see him. And we pray in confidence because we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
and amen. And as we listen for God's voice today, may the Lord be with you. The account of Daniel's three friends in the incinerator of an insecure, egotistical, power-hungry, infuriated pagan ruler is easily one of the most dramatic stories in all of Scripture. But I trust you know that engaging drama doesn't always translate into relevance. It doesn't always change your life. When I was 26, I went to watch the new film, Jaws. And it was dramatic. Every time the music went, do-dum, 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 do-dum. I was on the edge of my seat. But it didn't change my life. It was dramatic, but it wasn't relevant. Though the next time I went to the beach, I didn't go out (laughs) quite as far as I used to. And I wasn't alone in that experience. But in the third chapter of Daniel, we find drama and relevance joined together at the hip. As we've seen the last two weeks, when Daniel's friends refused to compromise their devotion to God, despite the threat of a hideous, painful death, they offered us some valuable insights into the nature of mature faith. Their prayer reminded us, their declaration reminded us that mature faith believes in the power of God, but it also believes in the wisdom of God. But they did more than teach us about mature faith. They also highlighted two fundamental convictions that shape that kind of faith, that encourage that kind of faith, that fuel that kind of faith. Now, here's the first of those two convictions. Mature faith trusts in both God's power and His wisdom because it's confident of His covenant love. Say covenant love. Covenant love. Mature faith believes God certainly has the power to save us from the furnace, but it also recognizes His wisdom may lead Him to save us in the furnace. And it recognizes both forms of God's intervention are expressions of His covenant love. Now, I'm using that term intentionally. You can't fully appreciate God's love until you understand it's an expression of God's covenant. You can't fully understand God's grace and forgiveness until you understand covenant. You can't fully understand salvation and your security in Christ until you understand covenant. So allow me to explain. Daniel and his friends were descendants of of Abraham. And they were aware that there was a day in Abraham's life when God graciously invited Abraham to enter into a covenant relationship with God. Now, a covenant relationship was an intentional, well-thought-out union between two parties in which both of them pledged all that they were and all that they possessed 
to the other. When two people formed a covenant, they were saying, all that I am, all that I possess, it now belongs to you. And God established that kind of a relationship with Abraham. And the boys knew that because they were descendants of Abraham, that covenant applied to them. They knew something more. They knew that God is always faithful to keep his covenants. Even when we aren't faithful, he remains faithful. Because if he were to betray his pledge, he would be denying his nature. He'd be denying his word. He'd be denying his love. He'd be denying his justice. He would be denying his very being. And those are things he cannot and will not do. So, Daniel's friends understood God's covenant love is a constant love because it's based on who God is, not on how we perform. In this world, we become accustomed to what is called conditional love. I'll love you as long as you please me. I'll love you as long as you agree with me. I'll love you as long as you go along with me. Well, that's not real love, and it certainly isn't it covenant love. Covenant love is based on who God is, not how we perform. It doesn't rise and fall with our inconsistent love. It remains constant. It remains steadfast. That's why God's covenant love endured, despite Abraham's frequent screw-ups and lapses, and unbeliefs and struggles. It's also why the covenant had endured for centuries despite the frequent screw-ups and lapses and unbelief of the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants. By the time Daniel's friends arrived on the scene, God's covenant with Israel had endured for centuries despite human imperfection. So they were confident that the covenant would survive the challenge that they were facing. And that's why they refused to compromise their devotion when faced with the furnace. Now, the second fundamental conviction grows out of the first. Daniel's friends understood this second conviction in theory before the furnace, but they understood it thoroughly after the furnace. I'd like to suggest the furnace is often the place where God moves us from theory into reality. They learn firsthand that God's covenant love isn't suspended when we walk into a furnace. It's simply expressed in a different fashion. It destroys the things that bind us. You see, the flames of the furnace, the flames of persecution didn't harm Daniel's friends' bodies. They didn't harm their souls. They didn't harm their minds. They didn't harm their relationship with God. They didn't harm their relationships with one another. They didn't harm their clothing. They didn't even harm their career path. They were on their way to promotion. The only things the fire destroyed were the ropes that bound them. Nothing but the ropes. They entered the furnace tied up, but quickly walked about freely, which left Nebuchadnezzar fit to be tied. 
I know. I know. That's a, uh, but I, I, I can resist anything but temptation. So I, and the burning of their ropes was symbolic of the reality that God's covenant love uses things intended for our destruction and he uses them as instruments of his deliverance. He uses the fires intended to destroy us to liberate us from the things that bind us. And he's really quite good at it because he's had lots of experience. And that's a good thing because he has to do it for us more than once. And for good reason. Look, humanity has made it clear that in general, the family of humanity has an infinite capacity for creating our own hells and for creating our own bondage. I often marvel that people find it hard to believe in a literal hell when almost every day we see human beings making a literal hell of their own life. And so while the human family is capable of creating their own bondage, God's people have a lot of help in creating their bondage. And I say that because as Jesus' followers, we incur the hatred of a very powerful, skilled, experienced adversary. He has many titles in names in Scripture, perhaps because one title or one name alone couldn't capture the extent of his evil. But the name whereby we're most familiar with him is Satan. And Satan knows he can't separate us from God's covenant love. So he seeks to bind us with things that lead us to doubt that love. He can't destroy God's love for you once you are in covenant. But he wants you to doubt that love because it will hinder your enjoyment of your relationship with God and it will hinder you from inviting others into a relationship with God. And in his efforts to make us doubt God's love, he starts even before we come to faith in the hopes of preventing faith. And then he ratchet up his efforts after we come to faith in the hopes of hindering our faith. And he starts very early. He uses the deep wounds experienced by the impressionable hearts of children through things like abandonment, and neglect, and abuse. And he uses those pains to effectively poison the word Father, which is so frequently used of God. Knowing that if he can poison that word, the idea of trusting our Father who is in heaven will become difficult for us. But he doesn't stop there. He peddles fake news about the cause of evil and the cause of tragedy in the world, suggesting that God is the ultimate culprit for every tragedy, knowing that that makes any talk of God's love utter nonsense. But he doesn't stop there. He suggests that God's nature is somehow revealed in our experience of life, thereby making our personal tragedies proof 
positive that God doesn't care about us and can't be trusted to take care of us. But he doesn't stop there. He uses the tragedies of abuse, abandonment, bullying, betrayal, bigotry, injustice, discrimination, greed, poverty, disease, and death to distort our thoughts about God, about ourselves, about others, about life, about the future. And he's looking to establish roots within our spirit, roots of cynicism, roots of bitterness, roots of despair, roots of hopelessness, roots of anger, roots of fear, roots of envy, roots of insecurity, and roots of unbelief. But he doesn't stop there. He advances the notion that a God who wouldn't accept any and every form of religious expression cannot be a good and loving God. But he doesn't stop there. He peddles an endless series of impotent idols that promise fulfillment but leave us feeling like fools. Then when we feel empty and betrayed, he suggests it was God, not the idol, that betrayed us. And finally, as if that weren't enough, Among the believing and those considering belief, Satan peddles the notion that faith is essentially adherence to a set of hard-to-obey rules rather than a relationship with the God of love. Because he knows none of us keep God's commandments perfectly. So if our focus is on rules, it will cripple our faith with the weight of shame and the weight of guilt. And he also knows it will cause us to see God in a very negative light because a rules focus portrays God as a rigid deity who demands the impossible rather than a loving God who does the impossible on our behalf. A rules focus portrays God as a God with a lust for power rather than a love for people. Now, here's the irony. A spiritual being with a lust for power, but the absence of love for people, would bear a striking resemblance to somebody in the universe, but it isn't God. It's Satan. Satan has a lust for power. He cares and could not care less about people. So it occurred to me this week, it wouldn't be a stretch to suggest that Satan tries to convince us God looks and acts like him so that we doubt God's love. And, and he's very effective because you'll hear it all the time in this culture. Oh, I can never follow a God who... And what, what follows is basically a description of Satan not a description of God, not the God who revealed himself in the Word and in Jesus. Satan's very good at what he does. Fortunately, God's even better at what he does. See, once we embrace a negative concept of God's love, we don't fall out of the kingdom, but we do inevitably doubt God's care. If you doubt his love, you'll doubt his care. And that sets up to believe the lie that our faith is destined to disappoint us. An uncompromised devotion is ill-advised. 
In essence, once we embrace a negative concept of God's love, we imagine faithfulness to God will leave us bound and burned rather than blessed. I know that from experience. I grew up with the negative concept of God. I I was convinced in my fallen heart that if I submitted my life to Jesus, all the fun would end. That he would deliver me from the demon of joy. (laughs) And I'd spend the rest of my life hanging around churches, looking and being miserable. Which is why at 19 I said I'll never darken a church door the rest of my life. Now, thank God I've learned it's not like that. But the thought, the thought that God's care is something to be doubted and that obeying him will leave us bound and burned keeps us from the very freedom our hearts desperately hunger for. Because given the pains of living in a fallen creation, given our own inherent weakness and sinfulness, given the unrelenting attacks against us, it would be no exaggeration to suggest all God's people suffer from some form of bondage. And while much of God's liberation from that bondage thankfully takes place outside the furnace, some of it will only occur in the furnace. And his love won't deny us that liberation. Love will never deny you what is ultimately best for you. Covenant love. Now, all throughout Scripture, fire is used to symbolize God's purifying work in our souls. When God wants to get the junk out of your trunk, he often uses fire analogies. I'm going to burn away the garbage. I'm going to get rid of the crap. I'm going to purify And it reminds us that a God who loves us just as we are loves us far too much to let us stay that way because He wants better for us. He doesn't want to change us so that He can love us. He wants to change us because He loves us. If you're a parent, you ought to understand the difference. When you're encouraging your child to some change in behavior, it's not because after that change in behavior you'll love them more. You're encouraging the change in behavior because you already love them passionately. You're not asking them to work towards your love. You're asking them to make a change based on your love. Big difference. God wants to destroy the things that bind His people. He wants to burn away those paralyzing fears and those false hopes. He wants to incinerate your crippling insecurity, your exhausting unforgiveness. And isn't unforgiveness tiring? He wants to burn away that suffocating bitterness, that simmering resentment, that draining anger those disappointing cultural idols, that runaway pride, that dehumanizing addiction, those misplaced priorities, those inappropriate confidences. He wants to burn away that demanding lust. 
He wants to remove anything and everything that hinders us from being and doing everything a loving God desires and everything he wanted for us when he first thought of us. He wants to position us for a promotion to a greater effectiveness and a wider audience in our witness. That's exactly what he did with Daniel's three friends. And it's exactly what he did in the life of a young man named Joseph many centuries earlier. God wants to enhance our testimony to those who are currently bound in sin by enhancing our freedom from the sins that bind us. Because you can't lead somebody to a place where you've never been. And you can't lead people to full freedom in Jesus if you aren't walking in full freedom in Jesus. If you aren't walking in freedom in God's covenant love, you may lead somebody into bondage to rules religion and leave them worse than you found them. The Pharisees specialized in that. Jesus said, by the time you guys get done helping people, they're twice as engulfed by hell as they were before you found them. Now, in those moments, when God allows you to walk into the furnace so that he can burn away what is binding you, if you aren't convinced of God's covenant love, you'll fear what the fire might do to you. But if you understand God's covenant love, you'll expect the fire to do something for you. And you'll rest in the knowledge that no furnace can destroy God's love for you. And no fire can take God's intended blessing from you. The furnace won't destroy anything but the ropes. If we allow ourselves to embrace a lie about God's love and about our identity in faith, we will be prone to see the furnace as a depressing, discouraging confirmation of more of the same. We'll be tempted to say, I've always doubted that God really loves me and This proves it. I've always known I'm a real screw-up, and this proves it. I've always doubted I could really trust God, and this proves it. See, if you believe the lie, you interpret the furnace as a confirmation of the lie. If early on you believe the lie, those horrible things happen to me because I'm evil and God's punishing me, then every furnace will become the place where God's punishing you. You won't be seeing your furnace accurately. You'll be seeing your furnace through the lenses of a lie. Uh, the, The tragedy is, in all that, God's still loving you passionately and fervently, but you aren't really feeling it. And, And you aren't sharing it. You see, the furnace, if you know Jesus, isn't where God says, here's more of the same. It's where God says, I want to free you from more of the same. 
you're tired of the same old, same old. I hate the same old, same old. Let's burn that sucker away and move on. You know, it occurred to me that we often don't realize that we're sick, that we're carrying a virus or that some vital organ is not functioning properly until what? Until we feel pain. Pain is a gift from God to let us know something's not right. And you need to find out what's not right and you need to address it. But generally, we don't even think in terms of something might be wrong until we feel pain. I'd like to suggest we often don't realize where we're bound until God allows us to step into the furnace. And that's when we say, whoa, boy, I've been talking about something I'm not possessing. Boy, I've allowed something to grow in me that, ooh, this is not good. You want an example of that? Joseph. Mentioned him earlier. When he was young, God gave him that vision that one day his family would bow before him. And he responded like an insensitive, arrogant punk. Went to his brothers and said, you know, you guys are going to bow to me someday. And God showed me that. I mean, it's amazing he survived that immediate moment. I'm sure everything in them wanted to beat the you-know-what out of him. And he would have richly deserved it. Because he was taking God's revelation to exalt himself over his family. Brothers who were there before him. Brothers who had probably helped change his messy diapers. A mother and a father who had fed him and raised him. And here he is, Mr. I'm sorry, Mr. Big Chest. Those of you who are Steeler fans know what that's referring to. Here he is, Mr. Big Chest. You guys are all going to be bowing to me. So they sold him into slavery, told Dad that he had been killed by a wild animal. He finds himself enslaved. Then he finds himself falsely accused. Then he finds himself unjustly in a prison. But as he went through those furnaces, God was burning away Joseph's ropes so that he subsequently said to those same brothers as he forgave them, guys, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for what? Good. In the furnace of Egypt, I got over myself. In this furnace, God showed me whatever he was going to do for me was so that I could better serve you, not so that you would serve me. But I was so full of myself, I couldn't see that. But now, having been through the furnace, I see God was setting me free from that garbage so that I could be positioned to serve your interests and to save your lives. When you understand covenant love, You see the furnace is the place where God burns away the ropes and nothing but the ropes. Everything else survives. So let's do some personal application. Erect a place of prayer in your heart. Get focused and listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit. 
And as you review your life, are there some difficulties you've been walking through and your response has been to grumble and doubt God? Safe to assume that's, that's happening in somebody's life. If so, in light of this teaching, ask God to forgive you. Ask Him to help you to look for the burning of the ropes, not the confirmation of your fears. Ask Him to give you that insight. And commit yourself to approaching the furnace with a new attitude, with expectancy. If you have accepted one of the devil's lies about who you are, because of sexual abuse, because of uh, bad parenting, because of unfortunate tragedies in your life. And if you've allowed that to poison your concept of God's love and lead you to doubt His care, I-, I want you to do something right now. While eyes are closed, I want you to just raise your hand. Say, Pastor, uh, that's me. I- I've embraced some lies about who I am because of what's happened in my life. Don't be afraid. This is a soul hospital. We're all here because we need Jesus. Put your hand up. Keep it up because I want to pray for you. Father, it is my privilege to pray for my brothers and sisters who have experienced the painful results of embracing a lie born out of their personal pain a lie that has robbed them of the joy of the Lord that is their strength, a lie that has hamstrung their faith. I pray right now, as your word brings light into their darkness, that you would do a wonderful, liberating work in their hearts. Help them to know the lie is a lie. Help them to know that your love is constant. Help them to see that while you hated that, and you mourned with them, and you mourned for them. You didn't stop it, because to stop it, you'd have to turn us all into robots, and you won't do that. But you have been ready for years to liberate them, to heal them, and to set them free. And I pray that they would begin to experience that freedom right now in the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, never has there been a father who has loved so much and been doubted so frequently. If it were all about you, you would have kicked us to the curb a long time ago. But in your great love, you've made it about us. Help us to know we can trust you. Outside the furnace, and inside the furnace. And that the only thing the furnace takes are the ropes. In Jesus' name, amen.